Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Belfer. Recently, I had the opportunity to collaborate with our pediatric emergency medicine colleagues in Dallas, Texas, specifically with Craig Huang, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Craig is also the co-director of the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Question Book Board Review Course and the co-editor of the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Question Review Book. The initial talk for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Board Review Course was titled Improving Test Performance, and Craig and I turned his lecture into a unique CHOP PEM podcast episode. By the way, you can still register for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Question Board Review Course at www.pemqbook. That's P-E-M-Q-Book.com. So listen and gather pearls as you prepare for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Boards. So just to show you that we aren't sort of happy with keeping things the way they are, uh, we've decided to change things around a little bit in terms of giving the test-taking strategies lecture. So instead of me just talking to you, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Robert Belfer, who is a clinical professor of pediatrics with the Perelman School of Medicine with the University of Pennsylvania. He's also an attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and is the host for the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. And so we decided that instead of me just sort of going through slides about strategies to help you with passing your boards, we're going to actually do a podcast and we're going to have a conversation about sort of things that you should probably keep in mind, some tips to maybe help you de-stress and not be so anxious about taking this upcoming board exam and things to think about. So when you're taking the test, you can hopefully score the highest possible score. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Vince, and also to Pam and Singy for allowing me to host this initial lecture topic titled Improving Test Performance. This will be a partnership between the PEMQ Book Board Review Course and, as Craig alluded to, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. You will be getting a ton of information during these sessions. During the downtime or the break time, feel free to log on on Apple or Spotify to listen to the over two dozen other episodes of the CHOP PEM podcast, which will only augment the information you're going to be receiving during this course. So audience, sit back, no need to open a PowerPoint presentation, and listen as Craig will offer plenty of pearls for you to succeed in passing the boards. Let's get started. Craig, in the Bible, wells have a special meaning. A well is about more than just water. A well is the symbol of a thriving community. So Craig, give us the five wells of how this thriving community of test takers will succeed as they prepare to pass the boards. So some of this stuff is, it's kind of like, of course, you want to think about this low-hanging fruit. You want to be prepared. Sleep well. Don't stay up the night before trying to cram every last little bit of information. Eat well. So make sure you're not hungry going into the board exam. You're going to be stressed out. You need to be well-fed. Dress well. 
some of the test taking centers might be very, very cold. And if you're always cold, bring a sweatshirt, bring a sweater, because if you're cold, you're not going to be able to think properly. You're going to like be stressed out because the environment is terrible and your performance on the test is going to be compromised. So those are some of the simple things that you can do. It seems like a no-brainer, but again, until you're in the environment, it won't hit you until you have problems. Okay, Craig, the computerized exam, okay, is now in a test center. Many of our audience may not have taken a test in this environment before, but obviously there are many resources that you can use prior to arriving at the test center. And the American Board of Pediatric website has some of these excellent resources. Tell us about some of them. Going to the website, the ABP website, it's www.abp.org, a wealth of information, very, very simple. You want to know your opponent, your enemy. So going to the website will give you a wealth of information. The first thing I think that would be very important is the content outline. So this goes through all the things that generally they're going to ask you questions about, and it's broken down into the percentages, how much of the test is going to be, say, on trauma, how much of it will be on child abuse, how much of it will be on EMS and disaster medicine. Those are really important. So because if those are areas that you're not confident in or weak in, you need to concentrate on those, obviously, right? Exam pass rates. Everybody wants to know, well, how many people passed the exam? Was it less than 50%? Was it more than 75%? You can get all that information, not only for just pediatric emergency medicine, but all the other specialties as well. So that's important as well. If you've never taken a standardized test in one of these computer testing centers, they're a little bit different than what it used to be when you went in person to the few little spots across the country. There's a whole tutorial on what it's like to take the test on a computer, how you can mark questions, but not necessarily commit yourself to the answer so that you can kind of come back to them if you're not exactly sure or you've got a kind of 50-50, how you can highlight information on the computer as well. because. You're not allowed to bring in paper. There are all these restrictions. You're not allowed to bring calculators. You're not allowed to bring a separate clock. I can remember when I first took the boards, people were bringing in pillows. They had seat cushions, things like that. There's definite rules in terms of what you're allowed to bring, what you're not allowed to bring. And anything that's not allowed in the test taking area, they give you a locker and you're supposed to put all that stuff in before you enter the test taking center. And so using the computer system takes a little practice, and it would be good to be familiar with that process before you actually take the exam. And so get that out of the way. Don't let that stress be over you before you take the boards and sort of trying to understand how it all works, you know, the first day, as opposed to at least getting an idea based on the tutorial. Right, Craig, and I can't emphasize the interface where you could actually go in and see what the screen is going to show you prior to entering the test center. You could actually do a few questions, complete a few questions, mark them, commit them. I mean, Craig, you remember, I'm sure Vince does too, where we're handed a pen and paper and we put our answer in, we marked, and I'll go back to this question. Well, in this computer interface, you could actually do the same thing, but I definitely emphasize what you said. You should probably look at this site and look at the interface uh, and these sample test questions before entering uh, the computer test center. Craig, something that I and many people complain about, 
after we walk out of the test, we say that question was worded terribly. Those answer choices were ridiculous. Okay, we're going to microscopically look at question development. But Craig, give us a 10,000 foot view. How can we turn lemons into lemonade? Tell us how we could take advantage, Craig, of some of the poorly written questions. I want to first tell you, having written board type review questions, both for PEMQ book and for Prep EMED, that's sponsored by the American Academy of Pediatrics, writing good questions isn't easy. It takes time. And some people take shortcuts. And you can take advantage of those shortcuts that people take because sometimes it's difficult to come up with, and we'll talk about later, sort of the distractors. When you're looking at these exam questions, there's only one right answer, okay, obviously. But trying to come up with other answer choices that seem reasonable for some topics can be very difficult. So there are strategies that test question writers use to sort of say, well, I'm going to make this a wrong answer by just kind of changing one little thing or adding something that obviously isn't correct at all. If you're aware of those kind of strategies that these question writers take, it can help you when you're actually taking the boards themselves. Obviously, there are definitely not great questions. They're going to be in the exam. Possibly, if enough people miss them, especially those folks who should get them right, generally always get them right, and are good test takers, the board's going to look at those and they may potentially throw those questions out. But you can use those kind of problems to your advantage when you're sort of looking through the test itself. And we'll talk about sort of those things that, you know, might highlight, hey, look, everything but, always, never. There are certain statements that should sort of be red flags because to be honest, you know, not all of us are great test takers. There's definitely some folks who I'm sure they get anxiety every time they approach a multiple choice exam because it's, again, not an accurate reflection maybe of your knowledge base or whether you're a great physician or not. But unfortunately, we have to deal with them and we're going to continue to deal with them until somebody decides we don't. Absolutely. All right, Craig, let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, I know we have many, many hours of uh, board review course uh, work coming up, but let's fast forward to the day of the test. You walk into the test center. As you said, you can't bring anything, pens, papers, things with you. But as you sit at the computer terminal, they will give you pencil and blank paper. Before you log on, or as you're logging on, you have five or 10 minutes before the test starts. What do you recommend you write down on that piece of paper before you commence taking the test? So uh, that's a great, great, great question, Bob. The things that you want to do sort of in that few minutes right before you're starting to, to sort of look at the exam itself is what I call kind of the memory dump. So there are topics, there are ideas in pediatric emergency medicine that you may not see a lot of, or you're always looking at it and you're going, I can't remember the formula for sensitivity and specificity with the two by two table, right? Because if you don't do it all the time or you're not in research and that's not a focus of yours, that's information that sort of goes in one ear and out the other. Those are kind of the topics that I would recommend that you want to do sort of that last minute cramming, because if you don't know, say, you know, trauma or acute appendicitis symptom signs, diagnosis and treatment, you're probably not going to remember that. But who remembers exactly how to set up the two by two table for statistics? Who remembers all the jumpstart triage guidelines for disaster management triage? 
those are kind of the low hanging fruit where you want to do just sort of jot out that information as quickly as possible. And that way you won't get nervous when you're like, is it A, B on the two by two table going across or is it vertical? Put that information down and then don't worry about it. And Craig, uh, having taken boards multiple times as you have, I can guarantee our audience that there will be sensitivity and specificity questions on the board. So that two by two table, mark it down. The other thing I found useful was medical command, online and offline medical command. Sort of, again, they like to ask those questions and many of our practitioners don't deal with that on a day in and day basis. Let's talk about, give us an overview, Craig, of the anatomy of a good question. Okay, you're gonna be saying hundreds of questions during this course. When you get to the board, you're gonna be saying actual questions. Talk to us about how these questions, the anatomy, a good board question. So the structure of, of board questions is very simple. The question starts off with the stem. So that is the story, the clinical vignette that should give you all the information that you need to make the correct answer choice. Then following the stem is the lead-in question. So what's most important? Always at the end. And then obviously the answer choices, A, B, C, and D. Fortunately, we went from five answer choices down to four. So out of those four choices, only one of them is correct. And then like I talked about before, amongst the remaining three other choices, those are what are called the distractor sort of answers. Okay. So again, we're going to talk about the specifics in each of those components that you mentioned, but some people have different test-taking strategies. Sometimes we'll read the question first. Okay. Sometimes we'll just read the last line of the question. Other people like to look at the answers before they even look at the question. Your thoughts on, you know, is it doctor specific, how you approach that, or are there better ways to approach a question? I think some of those techniques that you described, say going straight to the question first, is certainly a good strategy. If you're kind of one of those people who just doesn't like taking multiple choice tests, then certainly that's one, one technique you could use. I think when you're starting to read the question, when you quickly find out, hey, I have no idea what they're asking, it might be smart to go straight to the question because if you're looking through the vignette, you're wasting time because you don't know really what to highlight. Like, what is the key inf information that they're giving me to make sort of the decision? Because when you look at kind of the structure of the questions and the content, generally, most of the questions are what we call two-step or higher level thinking. They're not going to generally tell you what the diagnosis is. They're going to give you all the symptoms, diagnostic and ancillary tests that will tell you, hey, this is what you should know, what the diagnosis is. The question will then, the leading question will then be like, well, how do you treat this? Or what's the best management step at this point in order to you know, best take care of this patient? So sometimes it can be difficult when you're reading through the question, you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm missing the boat then you might want to jump straight to the question because you're like confused by the vignette. That could save you some time. If you're pretty good at taking tests, then going through the vignette and sort of highlighting the things that seem to be obvious. And we'll talk about this too. You know, abnormal vital signs, abnormal labs are there for a reason. They're there to tip you off to say, hey, look, this kid is in shock. The blood pressure is 60 over 20. Like, Previously, when I took the boards, I was taught you should highlight that and put like hypotension or shock. Don't just have the numbers or the ancillary test results staring at you in the face because that sort of triggers in your mind, 
what's going on. So a sodium of 128, that's hyponatremia. And so if you see hyponatremia versus just a sodium 128, maybe that'll jog your memory. So you can take little notes to say, look, this kid's tachycardic, this kid's hypotensive or in shock. And so hopefully that might make kind of trigger you into terms of getting to the correct answer or saying, you know what, I've got to first resuscitate this patient and then I can go on to the next step because some of those answers might seem correct at the time. But if the patient say is in, in a extreme amount of pain, then, you know, your first sort of best step might be, hey, let's get the patient's pain under control. Then we can do what's the most appropriate ancillary test, or this is the most appropriate treatment at that point. So look at what's being described in the vignette about the patient. Awesome. Craig, I think our audience is feeling a little bit better. Uh, a little more calmer now as they approach in the next uh, few months taking the board review, uh, board actual boards. Let's now, let's throw everything at them, Craig. Okay, we're going to start a lightning round. I'm going to just throw out different topics and I want you to give your expertise as far as uh, assisting them in improving their test performance. We all learned grammar in grade school, okay, but now we use social media. We text, we use WhatsApp, and the grammar there is terrible, okay? You opine that when a board question has bad grammar, this is a plus. Explain. So if, say, the verb or whatever action you're taking doesn't fit kind of the subject of the lead-in question, then you know that that answer choice is incorrect. I'm trying to think of what might fit. You know, if things are misspelled or it's the wrong tense, it's like past tense and you need something for what needs to happen right now then you know, you've, you've found your answer. Lots of people will say, if you're great at logic, then sometimes you don't even need to know the subject matter for multiple choice tests. If you just sort of think about things logically, it doesn't sort of make sense when you're looking at the answer choices and responses, like the sentence like doesn't seem to, to fit, then obviously the choices that have the wrong tense or are a plural subject or plural verb tense versus a singular verb tense are going to be the incorrect answers. Because when you're writing test questions, generally you think of the right answer first, and then you're having to struggle to kind of come up with distractor answer choices. So that's sort of like an afterthought because you're like, I already know what the answer is. I put it that, put that down. And so you don't concentrate as much on the distractor answer choices. And so sometimes the little kind of fine details are sort of missed. Awesome. All right. Two-part question here, Craig. Sometimes the questions have a lot of words in them. They're very long questions, okay? <laughs> Is every piece of information in that long question important? And let's look at the answers. Sometimes the answers go on and on and on. The same question. Are long, complete answers usually the correct ones, or are they not? So in general, the longer answer choice is usually probably correct because they're trying to include all the, quote, correct information. Now, the thing to remember and the caveat is, again, when you're trying to come up with a distractor answer choice, sometimes what test question writers will do is they'll say, they'll have a list of, say, one, two, three things. And then they'll say, how about if I throw in something completely incorrect as the fourth choice? And so they'll make it look like it's the right answer but they've added this one last thing in that makes it incorrect. So if that sort of jumps out at you, then obviously the longest answer won't be correct. Um, so those are sort of some of the tricks that test question writers will do. 
But in general, the longer answer choice, if you had to like choose over everything else that seems shorter. Now, as editors of board questions, we try to keep all the answers the same length just so that it doesn't seem so obvious. Okay. Uh, sticking with the answers, Craig, sometimes two of the answers are very similar. Maybe one word is different in the two different answers. Should you focus on those two or look at the other two choices? Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great point. And so again, that's another little sort of strategy that test question writers use is they're going to make things that look very, very similar. And the one thing that's different makes the other answer choice incorrect. So that's kind of a quick way to get sort of that 50-50 if you're not really sure. And so those are good answer choices to focus on because one of them is probably the right answer choice. Okay. Greg, how about absolute answers? In other words, <laughs> answers that use the term all or never or always, are these good choices as correct answers? So if you've been practicing long enough, you know that's not the case because patients don't read the books and don't always follow the rules. So those absolute answer choices are usually not correct. All right. You alluded to this before, Craig, but let's just go back. Vital signs. We call them vital signs because they're vital. In the question, when vital signs are abnormal, how important is that? Should you take notice of those abnormal vital signs or can it be a red herring? Absolutely. So I mentioned it before. They're there and they're abnormal for a reason, right? Or the lab that seems really abnormal, it's there for a reason. It's trying to point you in the right direction of the diagnosis. And like I said before, you know, translating that abnormal heart rate or blood pressure or pulse oximetry reading into words, hypoxemia, you know, shock, tachycardia might help trigger like, hey, this kid is an extremis. I have to first resuscitate them. Then I can worry about what diagnostic test I need to order. So highlighting those abnormal vital signs, those abnormal labs that jump out at you, they're there for a reason. Absolutely. They're generally not distractors. Great. Answers that have percentages in them. Okay. You have no clue of what percent it is. Do you go for the answer that says 15 or 20 percent, 80 or 90 percent, or do you stick with that middle range, 40 to 60 percent? What would you say about that, Craig? Yeah. So most people will tell you, like, don't go for the extremes. Try to stay sort of in the middle. Now, obviously, there are some diagnoses, there are some ancillary tests that are very, very good. I can think of the strep test, assuming it's a very good sample, the sensitivity and specificity is very, very high. 20% would be wrong or somewhere between 40 and 60. It's greater than 90. In most institutions that use ultrasound or looking for acute appendicitis, they've done it before. The sensitivity and specificity is really high. So you might not want to choose the 40 to 60%. But in general, unless it's super obvious, sort of saying in, in the middle is probably one of your best bets. Okay. Our audience, Craig, is not only attending this course, listening to your pearls, but I'm sure they're reading journal articles. So let's say a week or two before you walk into the boards, you read a journal article and it talked about a new way of treating a disease. You go into the test and lo and behold, you see a question about the article you just read a few weeks ago. Is that the new standard of care or should you go with the traditional standard of care to answer that question? Remember to think this is a national board exam and local practices, things that have just come out. So new, new, new treatments that may not have been extensively studied or researched are not going to be generally the correct answer because you have to think globally 
and on a more national level, what the standard of care is. So I would avoid those, ooh, this is a brand new treatment. Uh, and we get questions like that all the time where it's, oh, so-and-so has come out with this new sort of study that says this treatment is better, A is better than B. That's not generally going to be the correct answer. Stick with what's kind of generally accepted practice as opposed to just sort of local or sort of brand new treatments or therapies. Okay. In pediatric emergency medicine, Craig, we consult our pediatric specialists frequently. Okay. So if a question incorporates the recommendations of the consultant, are they trying to trick you? Okay. Do they sometimes throw something in there that the consultant is stating to veer you off the right answer to the question? Generally, no. Generally, no. Obviously, if it's something super simple, or again, I think, you know, when the, one of the answer choices is, oh, I'm going to consult my specialist, but there's something simple that you can do before you need to talk to the specialist, you should obviously do that step first. If it's something very esoteric, then clearly that's not something that a pediatric emergency medicine physician sees on a day-to-day basis. It's going to be difficult because knowing exactly what to do. So at that point, you might need your specialist, but if they're generally recommending something very specific, usually that's the right answer. Okay. This is a very simple question, Craig. You've taken the board review course. You feel very confident going into the test. You look at a question, you have no idea of the right answer. Do you leave it blank or do you make an educated guess? Um, So questions left blank. So no answer at all. You don't get any points. Okay. Right? Obviously. And choosing something at random, well, just from statistics alone, you should, on average, be 25% of the time correct. So better to go ahead and guess versus leaving it blank. Okay. As you pointed out, the American Board of Pediatrics talks about the different types and content of questions. And a big focus of the exam is correct management of the patient. Okay. So when you're in doubt, what's a good rule of thumb? as far as management decisions in these questions on boards? I think you need to like prioritize what do you need to do first? And so some questions, again, if the patient is unstable, you need to stabilize them first, right? Try not to sort of get lost with, ooh, I I know what this is. I know what the correct treatment is or the correct ancillary test to make the diagnosis is. If they're in shock, you got to resuscitate them first. If they're in significant amount of pain, you got to treat that first. So thinking of those things in terms of what's your first management priority. Now, realizing that that's not realistic, oftentimes in practice, we're doing multiple things all at the same time. But again, when you're trying to sort of prioritize, what do I need to do first? Think about sort of one, stabilizing the patient first, addressing immediate problems or causes first, and then the next step. Unless they're specifically asking you, what is the best ancillary test to make the diagnosis? Versus you'll see like, what would be the next best step in management? Do you see the difference where it's sort of like more, one is a very specific, they're asking you specifically, how am I going to make this diagnosis versus what would be the next best step in taking care of this patient? Understood. So it's really, it's as simple as ABC, airway, breathing, circulation, and many of us who've taken pediatric advanced life support, that's all it is. ABC, ABC, reassess. Answer choices, okay? Sometimes the answer choices consist of life-threatening diseases. Other times the answer choices are benign diseases. What is the American Board of Pediatrics trying to get at 
Okay. Do they want you to recognize what a benign disease is, or is it more likely that the answer would be a life-threatening disease? Obviously, it's the life-threatening one, right? Because going unrecognized potentially leads to death or serious morbidity. Right. And I know these seem like no-brainer type things, but again, in the heat of the moment, when you're super stressed, sometimes these things don't seem so obvious. Great. We talk a lot about bias, and not only in patient care, but also in taking and preparing for board exams. Talk about anchoring bias and some of the other biases that people may bring uh, to the computer center as they sit for the board exam. So this happens in general practice too, not just when you're taking board exams and tests, is anchoring bias is one of those things, uh, unconscious biases that we have when, say, a patient comes in who is shuffling along and says, I have pain in the right lower quadrant. The triage nurse writes, likely appendicitis. You read that little note and you're like, that kid's got appendicitis. You've now anchored the diagnosis to this patient before you've even like looked at and examined them. You have to avoid sort of making those snap, snap judgments. Yes, we do that a lot. We have to make quick, quick decisions with very little or no information, but say the patient can't talk to you or there is no family around to give you history. What else do you look at? Well, you look at vital signs, right? You start looking at ancillary testing. The kid's glucose is 20. So try to avoid sort of jumping to that kid's got to have appendicitis. Well, if it's an adolescent girl, maybe it's ovarian torsion and you are actually going down the wrong pathway thinking that it was acute appendicitis. Oh, I'm going to get ultrasound first. And then if that's equivocal, I'm going to get a CT scan versus, hey, maybe you actually need a Doppler study of their pelvis looking at their ovaries. Okay. Awesome, Craig. Uh, I'm sort of a stickler for numbers and things like that. Let's say my last three questions I answered A for. A-A-A. All right. So the fourth question after A-A-A, not likely to be A, correct? So don't look at the pattern of your answer choices. A, B, A, B, A, B. It can't be A because it was just B. We don't look at that when we're writing answer choices and the test question writers aren't looking at that. So if it's like the sixth A in a row, don't freak out. The correct answer choice is the correct answer choice. All right, Craig, we've covered a whole host of issues in preparing and hopefully improving your test performance. Any final words before the audience gets into the meat of the course, which is actually the didactic session, but talk about any final words about improving test performance. So one of the biggest questions I think people ask is like, so if I have no idea what this question is asking, no idea what the correct answer is, what choice should I choose? Bob, have you ever been told always choose choice C or always choose choice D? Yeah, I as my first name is Bob Belfer. I usually choose B for that reason, Craig. Because you like you like B, and my first name correct. is Craig, so I choose C. So interestingly, in 2014, a business and technical writer, William Poundstone, actually looked at, I think it was about 88 standardized tests. He took tests, standardized tests from like high school, college, professional groups, and amassed over 2,400 questions, and then had them statistically analyzed and found out that, hey, guess what? When you have four answer choices and a multiple choice, guess what answer choice happens a little bit more often than the other three? It's actually B, 28% of the time. When he looked at true-false type questions, the majority of the answer choices were true. 
Whereas you would think, well, statistically, it ought to be 50-50, right? True or false. So I don't know, maybe it's B. I haven't looked at our previous MQ book books and answer choices to see if that kind of holds out, but it might be something to think about, you know, if you have absolutely no clue. Again, the other thing that I think to remember too is that whole memory dump. You know, there are those that those little bits of information that for whatever reason just won't stick in your brain because you don't do them enough. There are topics like that throughout, like you talked about, EMS, so online, offline medical direction. Unless you do it regularly, you never can remember like which is which. The two-by-two table, jumpstart triage, disaster management, the 10 four faces rule for child abuse. You do that all the time. So topics like that, I think, can be sort of high, high yield and good things to sort of put in that short-term memory that if you kind of put them down as soon as they give you that piece of paper, hopefully that'll kind of keep you calm. Again, think about those low-hanging fruit, you know, dress well, sleep well, eat well, you know, take care of yourself because if you're hungry, if you're cold, if you're tired, if you're stressed out, you're not gonna do well. And so take care of yourself. Hopefully that'll keep your stress level down and you can concentrate on getting the right answer.